Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a worrisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discern their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me, it is good to be near you, God. And I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Father, thank you that we can spend just a moment now knowing that your arms are open wide. Your love has been demonstrated to us in such awesome ways. We just want to celebrate you. We just want to celebrate your love. We want to celebrate an understanding of you that draws us closer and closer and closer to you. Father, I pray today that no matter where someone is in their journey with you, that our attitude today will be, God, take us, take us to the next step. Take us to the to the next level of understanding who you are so we can feel that love, so we can understand some of that love that you have for us in a way that will just draw us into your arms and draw us close to you. God, that's my prayer for every single person here today. Draw us to your love. Draw us to a deeper understanding of you. Give us a heart that's ready to receive that love that you have to share with us. In Jesus' name now, we continue to worship. Amen.
Well, I invite you to take your Bible and open with me the last uh, several months. In fact, every Sunday this year, uh, we've opened our Bibles to the book of Mark. But guess what? We finished Mark last week, so don't open your Bible to Mark. Open your Bible back to the Psalms. Psalm 73. We're opening up a study today of the, the, the third book of the Psalms. And I encourage you to keep your Bible open and move with us as we, as we walk through uh, Psalm 73 today. Um, last Thursday, after, after our sermon critique and after our staff meeting, I jumped into my car and I drove uh, 10 hours to South Alabama. Uh, every 4th of July, our family uh, has gathered together over the last number of years and uh, I've not taken part of that uh, very often over, over the last 15 or 20 years. And so uh, I had not seen my dad since my brother passed away two years ago. And with COVID and all last year, I had not seen any of my family uh, since then. And so it was, it was great as, uh, <clears throat> as I arrived there with uh, my family, uh, being able to, to, uh, to touch my dad and lay eyes on my dad. Uh, see several of my nieces and nephews and even a cousin or two. It was just, it was a great exhilarating experience. Uh, my dad is moving slower these days. Uh, he's, he's getting on up there. Uh, years of hard work and, and raising five boys uh, has paid a toll on his ability to uh, motor around. Uh, he moves around now with a cane or with a walker, but his mind is still sharp as a razor. <laughs> and his, um, his attitude, his demeanor uh, is determined. His will is very determined. I've shared this with some of you before, but his older doctors have all retired. And he now has a doctor that he refers to as a lady doctor. <laughs> And again, I would love to be a fly on that wall when, uh, when, when he's uh, seeing her about once every month or so. Uh, but my visit reminded me that I grew up in a very expressive family. Uh, there have been times in our family system where doubts about family members have almost destroyed our family. Uh, critical decisions have almost blown our family apart, destroyed our family. Today we turn to book three of the Psalms, and we're going we're gonna to follow in book three of the Psalms, at least for 12 of these Psalms, uh, a guy by the name of Asaph. And so it's important for us to understand as we look at this Psalm, uh, who Asaph is. In fact, in the superscript of Psalm 73, the Bible simply describes this as a Psalm of Asaph. So who was Asaph? Um, well, he was a Levite who devoted his life to minister in the context of, first of all, the tabernacle and then uh, the temple. In 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 16, King David had captured the Ark of the Covenant and returned it to Jerusalem. It had been captured by the Philistines. And Asaph was appointed by the other Levites to, quote-unquote, raise sounds of joy on the symbols in the worship of the Lord. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 5, 
David commissioned Asaph to be among those who ministered and worshiped regularly in the tent of meeting to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord. In 1 Chronicles chapter 25, verses 1 and 2, David chose the sons of Asaph to serve the Lord by prophesying with lyres and harps and cymbals. In 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 13, Asaph and his son served faithfully under David and Solomon. And after David had died, God allowed Solomon to build the temple. And Solomon appointed Asaph and his sons to serve in the dedication of the temple. So Asaph and his faithful sons taught and instructed and ministered side by side in the ministry of, of God. Uh, their legacy lasted for generations, and their faith in God was solid, and their ministry was extremely effective. Now, what does that have to do with us today? Well, it has a lot to do with us today. Even before we get into the text of this psalm, as we just look at the life of Asaph, we have to understand that this man and his walk with God, his testimony for God, impacted generations for over 200 years in his family. Are you aware that could be you? I mean, you are setting a legacy, whether it's positive or negative. And as we work through these psalms over the next few months, I want to challenge you to consider the fact that God wants to use you to impact generations that might come after you. No matter what your age is, no matter what your step in walking with God is, my prayer for you today is that you will listen to the Word of God and apply the Word of God to your heart and let Him challenge you to be an impact on generations to come just like Asaph was. But we have to understand that Asaph, just like our family, faced times of doubt. These times of doubt could have devastated their faith. It could have wrecked that family legacy. And I pray that you will understand that no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, there can be a starting point today where you overcome whatever doubt Satan wants to put in your mind about God being able to use you to impact future generations. And you might follow the testimony and the impact of a man like Asaph. So keep your Bible open as we begin this journey into Psalm 73 today and follow through book three of the Psalms. Today we're going to understand how to overcome doubting God. As we look at verses 1 through 3 in Psalm 73, we have to understand, first of all, the cause of death, doubt. What causes doubt in our lives today? Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph, verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. 
For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, there are many causes for doubt. Many causes for doubt in God. But one of the greatest causes Asaph points out here in us doubting God is looking around at other people, looking around at possessions that other people have, and envying other people. Envy caused Asaph to doubt God. So again, envy is looking at what other people have or what other people have accomplished or are accomplishing so that we, listen to this now, lose our focus on God. We lose our focus on reality. Asaph was a gifted worship leader. He was a gifted worshiper. He was a gifted musician who served in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And God used this man to write inspired scripture. And yet he confessed that envy caused him to doubt God. So we're going to track today and see what to do when doubt comes our way. But before we look at that, let's check out this envy thing. What, what causes envy? What are some signs that envy is taking over and a part of your situation in life? Well, when you aren't happy for others when they achieve success, you might be guilty of falling under the temptation of envy. When another person's success makes you feel unhappy. When you feel the need to diminish someone else's success or accomplishment. When you judge other people negatively. When you're happy when others face setback. Now I want to stop here for a minute. Because I know some of you are... Carolina fans, some of you are Clemson fans, some of you are North Carolina fans, some of you are West Virginia fans, some of you are Georgia fans. Do you feel good when your opponent loses? <laughs> well, you might be guilty of envy. And I know that's a light way of looking at it, but there, this is a very serious issue in the lives of especially believers in Christ. You might have a friend who's struggling with envy, and if you do, they have symptoms like this. They greet your good news with negativity. Ever been there? They frequently try to outdo or one-up you in whatever you accomplish. They make you feel bad about yourself or look down on yourself or criticize you. They struggle with insecurity and self-esteem. A friend may be struggling with envy if they don't offer support when you're down and out, when you need support, and on and on and on we could go. Well, the bottom line is Asaph fell into this trap of comparing the plight that he was living with other people. And envy caused him to doubt God. Now let's just be honest. If you're like me, you've had times in your life when you said, God... What is going on? Where are you? Why is this happening to me? If you're like me, you've had times of doubt. And if that's you, I want to challenge you today to listen carefully to what Asaph did and follow his example. In verse 2, 
The scripture says that envy almost caused him to stumble. Envy almost caused him to slip and fall. Envy almost blew up his life of ministry. So listen up if you've ever been in that situation of of doubting God. Let's just look, first of all, though, at the consequences of doubt. In Psalm 73, 4 through 16, we see some of the consequences of doubt. In verse 4, he writes, For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Do you see what's happening to Asaph? Asaph has a distorted perspective of reality in life because these people that he describes as having no pain until death and their bodies being fat and sleek, in other words, they never run out of food to eat, uh, they're not ever in trouble. Who does he think he's fooling? I mean, his perspective was so skewed that he couldn't see the reality of the fact that Evil people have problems as well. In fact, their problems are far worse than the problems of those who are true to to knowing and following God. But he couldn't see that because his perspective was distorted. He had perceived that evil people had no problems. And this perception caused his spiritual vision to be blurred. I went to the doctor last Monday to MUSC Storm Eye Clinic. I've been going back and forth there for a little while. In fact, over the last two years, I've had six changes in the lenses in my glasses. Uh, I've been diagnosed with diplopia, hypertrophia of the left eye, and the fourth nerve palsy of the left eye. So what does that mean? It means that if you ever see me driving down the road without my glasses on, you better head for the near swamp. Because <laughs> my vision is off. I have double vision. I have multiple images that pop up when I'm driving without my glasses or doing anything without my glasses. It simply means that I can't trust my eyes without having corrective lenses. And so Asaph was spiritually distorted in his spiritual vision. He couldn't see straight spiritually. And self-pity, self-pity had destroyed his ability to see reality. He was living in in a world that wasn't real. His perspective was skewed. Look at how he perceived wicked people in verse 6. He said, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell as through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. See what he's saying? His his perception of evil people was that they're just prideful. They participate in violence and they don't even get caught for it. They wear it with pride. Again, they, their table's never empty of food. They can't tell the truth from a lie. They're, they're lofty in 
folly. And they even curse God. You know anybody like that? You know anybody that seems to be thriving in life and all they do is ever look down on God or curse God or vocally say, I don't even believe in in God, that kind of thing. So in self-pity, Asaph became self-deceived. All he could see was the prosperity of the wicked, which was not a proper perspective. Verse 10, he says, Therefore his people turn back to them, and they find no fault with them, and they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge of the Most High? In other words, they're they're mocking God, and they're getting away with it. Verse 12 says that these are the wicked. They always are at ease. They increase in riches. So here's what's going on. His, His distorted spiritual vision had led him to drown in self-pity. And then his self-pity led him to be self-defeated in his attitude. And then his self-defeated attitude led to inner conflict. There was a war going on inside of him, and he, he couldn't focus on reality because of the envy that he had in his heart and the doubt that he had in his heart about God. Last week on that 20-plus hour trip to South Alabama, I processed back through my audio version of Randy Alcorn's book on heaven, one of the most fascinating, greatest books that I've read a number of times. And every time I read it, I pick up something new. He points out that this sin-filled world is not the focus of the believer when we focus on what's going on with evil people and focus on the sin that's going on in the world, it takes our eyes off of God. It takes our eyes off of an eternal perspective. And doubting God magnifies our negative, sin-filled world. So focusing on this world will lead to self-pity, and self-pity will lead to self-defeat, And self-defeat will lead to inner conflict. Are you there today? Are you struggling with what's going on on this earth and in this world? Either physically or emotionally or even spiritually? If so, you're in good company because that's where Asaph was. And look at the consequences of Asaph's doubt. In verse 13, All in vain... Have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence? For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me to be a wearisome task. So as long as his focus was on what's going on around him in this world... He was confused, and his confusion led him to doubting God. Asaph had a distorted view of God's goodness. And as long as Asaph doubted the goodness of God, he was miserable. He was miserable. Know anybody like that? Know anybody that's just 
floating along through this earth, Debbie Downing about the good things that are happening to evil people and pointing a fist toward God saying, why are evil people prospering while nothing but bad things are happening to me? Do you ever doubt the goodness of God in your life? Last week in, in our conclusion to the book of Mark, we challenged you to focus on mission. Because that's what Jesus challenged us to do. The last words that Jesus spoke in the book of Mark were to his, uh, the ladies who came to the tomb and found that tomb empty. Their message was their mission. The message was this. Go and tell. Go and tell. And that's the mission of every believer in Jesus Christ. That's the mission of every God-fearing person. God has given us that same mission to be focused on going and telling the goodness of the Lord in our life. And when we're focused on the negative things of this world, we can't focus on the mission, the goodness of God, to go and tell. Because you can't focus on the mission of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, which is the message of the gospel when you're drowning in self-pity and self-defeat and inner conflict. Can't do it. It's impossible. It's like mixing oil and water. It won't mix. So doubting God takes our focus off of our mission. So now let's look at the cure. What's the cure to doubting God? We see that in verses 17 through 28. Asaph experienced a spiritual awakening. Are you familiar with the term revival? Revival comes from two words which simply mean to return to life. Come back to life. And that's what happened to Asaph. Corrective lenses appeared for him when he entered into the sanctuary of God. Look at verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Now, Asaph knew the sanctuary of God well. Asaph had served in both the tabernacle experience, the tent of meeting, as well as God's temple when Solomon built the first temple. He knew what it was like to be in the sanctuary of God. Now, most of us have a distorted picture of what that looks like. When Asaph was relating to the to the sanctuary of God, he was in reality for the first time. The sanctuary of God is a bloody mess. The sanctuary of God is where God has been separated from man because of sin. And in the sanctuary of God, thousands and thousands and thousands of sacrifices had to be made for those Millions and millions of sins which God's people had, had committed. 
And in order to have a relationship with God, God's judgment on sin had to be applied. And that's why blood sacrifices had to be supplied for sins to be covered from God's people. Now fast forward to our generation. We looked at this very carefully last week. But when we enter into the sanctuary of God, when we enter into the presence of God, there's only one way we can get there. And that's to have an appropriate sacrifice to pay for the price of our sins. Our sin separates us from God. And for us to be able to enter the sanctuary of God, God has provided a way through His Son, Jesus, to be that bloody sacrifice for you and me. He exchanged His perfection. He never sinned. He exchanged His perfect life and His righteousness for our sin. And to enter the sanctuary of God, we can only come to the sanctuary of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus said it this way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. Our passage to the sanctuary of God is through the blood of Jesus. So let me ask you today, have, have you applied the blood of Jesus to your life? How do you do that? Well, you do that by admitting that you are a sinner. Have you done that? There's no sin that's too great that can't be forgiven when you apply the blood of Jesus to that sin. But you have to come to Him with a humble heart and admit that you need Him. Admit that you are a sinner. And then you believe that Jesus died for your sin. He became that substitutionary sacrifice for your sin. And when you come to Him and say, God... I come to you through the blood of Jesus. Please forgive me of my sin. I repent of my sin and turn away from my sin. And I want to give my life completely to you. And like Asaph, I want to be used by you. In spite of my doubts, in spite of my fears. I come to you not on my behalf. Not on anything good that I've done. But I come before you based on the blood of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's when you can enter the sanctuary of God and be reunited with Him. And be used by Him to impact generations after generations after generations in your life. When Asaph saw the reality of God through those corrective lenses that were applied to his spiritual eyes in the sanctuary of God. Then he saw God for who he was. He saw God fully judging his sin, but accepting him on behalf of the sacrifice that was made on his behalf. We all need that perspective today because when Asaph saw God for who he was, his doubt disappeared. And that will happen every time for you and me as well. We all need that perspective. Jesus bled and died as that sacrifice for my sin and for your sin.
1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all un unrighteousness. Your unrighteousness, my unrighteousness, no matter how dirty and filthy it is, can only be forgiven through the blood of Jesus. And I trust today that many eyes will be opened to the reality of who God is, the great, loving, judging, and yet forgiving God on your behalf. So let me ask you, do you have a correct view of God's judgment and of God's forgiveness? Asaph repented, and in his repentance he did four things. So let's look at them as we wrap up this passage. First of all, in verse 21, Asaph admitted his error. Look at it. He said, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. You see his attitude? His attitude was, I, I admit that I was wrong. I admit my error. Secondly, then Asaph believed God. Look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Where did his perspective go? His perspective went to God. And that perspective of God led him away from the things on this earth and led him to a heavenly perspective. And that's what you and I need today as well. So Asaph admitted his error. Secondly, he believed God. Thirdly, Asaph confessed delight in God. He confessed delight in God. Look at verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now we can only imagine what that perspective is forever and ever and ever and ever. We live in a continuum of time and space. We can't imagine what forever is. But forever is forever. It never ends. It goes on forever and ever. And that's where confessing delight in God takes us. It takes us outside the realm of this world into eternity forever. Desiring God changes everything. Heaven is foremost in delighting God. When we think about heaven a lot of times, and this is fresh on our mind today, over this past year we've had a lot of people who have died due to COVID and other related illnesses, and so... So death and, and, and heaven should be fresh on our mind. And when we think of going to heaven, a lot of times we think about, you know, reuniting with our mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and people that we love. And that's true. I mean, we're going to be able to, as Randy Alcorn says, we're going to be able to sit down across the dinner table and we're going to be able to have those conversations that we haven't had for a year or 10 years or 50 years or whatever. That's going to be great. But the greatest perspective of heaven is seeing God for who He is. 
seeing God in all of his fullness. We can only imagine the fullness of God. We can imagine it, and the greatest of our imagination is limited here on this earth. But God is greater than whatever we can imagine his greatness to be. But one day, for the believer, we're going to confess delight in God. That's what Asaph did. And then finally, Asaph refocused on the truth. He refocused on the truth. Look at verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Now there's two sides to this coin. One is awesome and wonderful. That eternal perspective of heaven. But don't pass over verse 27 too quickly. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. See, here, here's the reality. And I say this with all love and compassion. And hopefully can put a spark in our heart to share that mission of going and telling about the forgiveness of God from the judgment of sin through the cross and resurrection. But you can't believe in heaven without believing in hell. Hell is real, just like heaven is real. And people, according to verse 25 and thousands of other verses in the Bible, point toward the fact that for one to die without coming through the sanctuary of God, through the blood of Jesus, will perish in hell. And that doesn't mean you just go up there and poof, you're gone. That means that forever and ever and ever and ever, you're tormented. Tormented in hell. That's the truth. Sometimes the truth hurts. But what it should do is compel us to tell the good news of God's judgment on sin and satisfaction of that judgment through Jesus and open arms of forgiveness to those who will repent and turn away from our sin and turn to Him. John 8, 31 and 32 says, If you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Heaven, that's the truth. Hell, that's the truth. The choice is yours. The choice is yours. So what drives your mission? Are you looking at life through God's lens or are you looking at life through a distorted lens? I challenge you to do like Asaph. Admit, believe, confess, and refocus on the truth. Because that's where you overcome doubt. If you have it, admit it. Believe that God is bigger than your doubt. When you can't see his hand, the songwriter says, trust his heart. Because he's there to take you by the hand and pull you through whatever you're going through. It takes your focus off of him. 
and then refocus on the truth. Romans 8, 1 and 2, we're going to be studying in our small groups this week. It says, there's therefore now no condemnation. Got that? No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. So Jesus was condemned so you could be free. Jesus died for your sins so you would not have to doubt God in your sin. That's the great exchange. That's the truth that sets you free to overcome doubt. I love studying the lives of people, have loved studying lives of people throughout history. One of my favorite people who was ever born is a lady by the name of Fanny J. Crosby. Fanny J. Crosby wrote over 8,000 hymns and gospel songs. There are over a million copies of her music still in print today, and she died in the early 1800s. She lived to be 95 years old. She was born blind. Blind. 8,000 hymns, hymns like Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. Rescue the Perishing. Safe in the Arms of God. On and on and on I could, could go. She could have lived her life in remorse. And in regret that she never could see anything. Asaph lived long before Jesus, but his doubt was cured when he, when he focused on the sanctuary of God. And that's what I want to call you to do today. One of the greatest statements Fanny J. Crosby ever made when she was asked by a reporter, have you ever wondered why God made you live your whole life blind? And here's her response. She said, I'm the most blessed person who's ever lived. Can you imagine the first thing I will ever see is the face of my Lord Jesus Christ? Is that your perspective today? Is your focus more on heaven and the face of Jesus the open arms of the love of God that we've sung about this morning, more than the things of this world, the trivial things of this world. I mean, we've all had tough breaks at times in life. But what's the perspective? Is the perspective the breaks that we've had on this life, or is our perspective focused on eternity? I'm going to wrap it up this morning by just giving us three points of application. And I trust you'll take these seriously. I trust you'll take them home and pray about them and let God quicken your spirit as you focus on these application points. Number one, I want to challenge you to join me in keeping your focus on the goodness of God. Not focusing on what's going on here, but focus on what's going on here. How's your heart with God? In our world where wicked seem to prosper more than the righteous and where the eyes of the believer are sometimes pulled away from the goodness of God, will you make the choice to turn your eyes 
on God and focus on His goodness. Never desire earthly goods or earthly possessions over God. Make sure that every decision you make is based on how is this reflecting on my relationship with God? What is God saying to me about the struggle that I'm having inside? Secondly, keep a long-term view of eternity. Long-term view of eternity. I've said this, but, but, but God gives us a proper outlook on life. And His outlook is the long-term view. The long-term view is heaven or hell. We have to make that choice. So keep the long-term view of eternity. And thirdly, keep a constant trust in God. Keep a constant trust in God. See, doubt comes when you fail to concentrate on God and focus on trusting Him. So keep your focus on Him. Again, Romans says, There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you weighted today with a guilt complex? Is Satan pressing in on you because of some bad choice you've made? Give it to Jesus. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You can give it to Him. Are you struggling with a tough decision that's pulling your heart apart? Give it to Jesus. Trust Him. Keep your focus on Him. You overcome doubt by focusing on God. As I close this morning, here's the question. Have you truly made Him, God, the King of your heart? Is your focus on Him or away from Him? See, only God, only God will never, never, never let you down. Father, thank you today for your Holy Spirit who's working in this room today. You're working in the hearts and lives of people who are both believers and non-believers. And your Holy Spirit is drawing us maybe to wake up. Maybe to take our focus off of our sin and off of our failure, off of our defeats. Maybe take our focus off of our struggles, off of our pain, off of our heartache, and refocus on you. God, thank you for opening your arms and opening your heart to receive anyone today who will admit that we need you, admit that we've turned away from you, believe that Jesus has paid the price to set us free and then commit our life in repentance to turning toward you and following you and allowing you to make our lives a legacy that other generations can build on and follow for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name now we continue to worship. Amen. Let's stand together as we continue to worship.